Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Welcome to episode 87. Just off the top, I want to throw out a quick thank you for the response we've had to the Saw Rad Rap. A lot of people coming out of the woodwork that were appreciative that we did it and they were so stoked on it and it even inspired some people who started listening to revisit the Saw franchise, which just makes me smile from ear to ear. And we also just dropped the second episode of the Rad Rap talking about our journey, our movie marathon through the Edmonton International Film Festival. So that's streaming now. So go listen because it's really, really great. And we watch some really great movies, one of which is one of our favorites of all time now. So don't want to miss that. Let's get into this macaroonies proper. Why don't you kick us off with the the first one, Kylie? We went out to the theater to see a film that was getting some good reviews, but I hadn't heard a ton about. And I was just like, I think I want to see that one. It looks creepy. It looks interesting. And we saw the 2023 thriller Red Rooms. It was directed and written by Pascal Plant, and it stars Juliette Garriepi as Kellyanne, Laurie Babin as Clementine, or Clementine, mm. uh, Elizabeth Locas as Francine Billieu, and Maxwell Macab Locas as Ludovic Chevalier. Synopsis, a model becomes obsessed with a high-profile murder trial. What did you think of Red Rooms? I can't help but want to read it as Red Rooms. Red Rooms! I had a very similar journey to you where this was, I saw it was coming out, it was, at, it was playing at Metro, and the more, the more trailer, times that I saw the trailer for it, I was like, I'm interested in that. I want to go see that. I mean, first of all, I love going out to support some CanCon, a little Canadian content that always makes me feel good in my heart. But despite seeing trailers for this, I really didn't know anything about it, and I wasn't prepared for what I was walking into. Mm. And I want to kick things off by saying I'm not sure if we've talked about this 
probably have at some point on the show, but I feel like I can speak for both of us when I say that dark web stuff really scares the piss out of us. Yeah. I mean, and it's not just dark web. It's like any, it's particularly bad with dark web because it feels like, I think the like creepy narrative is that you could accidentally stumble on this stuff. Yeah. Right. That like, if you just click on the wrong Reddit link that this could happen, I think in reality, like, you know, people say this stuff doesn't exist, which I find hard to believe. But if it does, it's more like in red rooms where, like, it's incredibly hard to access. Yeah. Like, you're not going to stumble upon it. It's going to happen because you're seeking it out. And even then, you'd have to go to great lengths to, to get it. Um, but I think that's the creepy narrative. And, like, even something like Videodrome mm. has that kind of element of, like, what if you accidentally stumbled on a channel that you were never supposed to see? Or what if you accidentally stumbled on, like, a radio like, like you hear something you were never supposed to hear. I think mm -hmm. that's the creepy part of it. But with the internet, it's just so amplified because those devices are so personal to us. We're often like in bed looking at them and, and you get into these just like tunnels of, of going from this page to this page to this page, from this reel to that TikTok to whatever, mm -hmm. um, that it feels like you could just accidentally end up in a place you never intended to. Yeah. I think that I had some experiences like that very early in my internet journey back when I had a home PC and I would just be up late at night during the summer and just through my aimless internet going, I would end up seeing things, not dark web stuff, but just yeah, images that I'm very upset to this day that I saw. God, Elliot. I know. It's a... Uh, not like I was searching for nefarious stuff, but the internet will get you. So you're so you're contradicting what I said. You can stumble upon stuff you don't want to see. Yeah. But not to the degree of what you're seeing in this film. No, not at all. I mean, this film made me want to immediately go home and change all my passwords to everything. Yeah, I mean, that's I think that in talking about Mr. Robot, which is a show that we love, it's um season two that will most make you feel like you're not protected by any of your technology. No, oh, yeah. 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 And like that, if somebody wants to, they can easily access not just like your password, but your house. <laughs> like, yeah. Through your lack of cyber safety. Yeah. Right. Um, I recently learned hot, hot tip for everybody out there that full sentences are the best way to uh, come up with passwords and throw in a bunch of random characters in there oh yeah cyber safety baby in terms of this movie though it a big part of it kicks off and is focused around this murder trial as the synopsis suggests and the murder trial itself is profoundly bleak and upsetting in nature and that's what you're dropped right into at the beginning of the movie but i will say that this is just another example though it I, i'm I'm very aware that this is a fictional movie. It's a, it's another example of the theatrics of the court system. Mm. And we talked about this recently and yeah. And that just like makes me feel yucky. I, I don't, I don't love how it's just about going big and trying to put on the biggest show in order to sway the people who have a person's hands in their life, in their life, in their hand. Nope. Their life in their hands. <laughs> Good words today, Elliot. Yeah. yeah, this film is really interesting in that I think people 
might go into it expecting one thing, like just a court drama or something more salacious than it is. What was really interesting to me about this film is there is, I, w- I would argue, no on-screen violence. Yeah. Like you hear some audio that's pretty disturbing and you see like still images and like some brief images of like the aftermath of something, but you never actually see violence inflicted on anybody or like um, clear images of that violence at any point. And yet it is one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen. Yeah. I feel like through those devices, it's almost worse because it's making you use your imagination, which I I don't want to have to imagine the <laughs> no. things it's asking me to imagine. So one of the interesting things about this is it's it's not a film that's widely known right now. Um, it was really successful at Fanta- Fantasia Fest. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what that's called? I think so. It won um, kind of all of the major awards. It won the Cheval Noir competition, um, and it won Best Feature, Best Screenplay, and two other prizes. Now, it is a Quebecois film, which is, I mean, also I could see people like really going out to champion, because Fantasia Fest is done in Montreal, to then support this film made in Quebec. Um, But I was reading an interview with Pascal Plant, because there isn't a lot of just like other people writing about Red Rooms right now. And he talked a lot about where he came from with this film because his first film is called Nadia Butterfly and it's like about a swimmer. Mm. Like it is not in any sort of thriller horror genre at all. And he said um, he set out to make an anti-serial killer movie. That was his quote. And that this kind of came about during the pandemic when he, despite never having been very drawn into horror, he started... He like if he watched horror, it was more like Haneke, he always said. And then he started to watch more like exploitative genre films and true crime during the pandemic and just got like sucked into it. So this is a quote from him. He said, after watching hours of content featuring the likes of Ted Bundy, I would always feel drained. That voyeurism felt like vampirism. Um, and so he said he felt like there's been tons of shows and movies showing the killer's side, showing the victim's side, or showing the police investigation. But what he hadn't seen is like the spectator, the person who's obsessed with it, which mm. so many people are. And he feels like that's such a um, aspect of this that hasn't really been looked at. And that's what he wanted to explore. Yeah, I would I would say that he nailed it because, yeah, once we're introduced to the character of Kelly Ann, the mystery of the whole film intensifies in that she's attending this court case. But where does she fit into this whole thing? Yeah, it's such a he achieves such a bleak exploration of humanity and the darker sides of it. Yeah, this is um, we bookended this week, not on purpose. Um, Because we watched two films we knew very little about that aren't super well known with, I think, two incredibly impressive but different ends of like the horror genre. And yet both are very, very, very beautifully crafted, like as films. They're so purposeful. They're shot so beautifully, like they're just well made. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, very smart and subtle ways. Like they're not hitting you over the head with how smart they are. Um like at the end of this, I was like, I felt like that, I feel like that said something so nuanced and complex about like an obsession with crime and obsession with true crime, especially white women's obsession with true crime. <laughs> yeah. Now, is that Pascal Plant's film to make? I don't know. But that is often like, like true crime is so consumed by 
women and in particular like white cis women mm-hmm. um and i think i would get so much out of watching this film again and thinking about it from that lens like what is it saying about an obsession with true crime but it was so disturbing i don't know that i want to see it again not that i wouldn't see it again but i wouldn't chomp at the bit to watch it it wasn't fun yeah it left me feeling pretty icky yeah like walking out of it i i didn't feel good but i enjoyed like i think the movie is 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 really good and it's executed really well it's a conundrum i saw somebody on letterboxd um say that they felt like this film was like dancing between what like uh, DeCorno who made Raw and Titan and then like Haneke with like Funny Games and Piano Teacher. Like it's like kind of playing in that space with like mm-hmm. the wildness of a DeCorno film, mm-hmm. but the like sobering control of, of a Haneke film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah, it's really, it's really doing both of those things at once, which is incredibly impressive. And I've heard great things about his first film. Um, he also said that, in that interview that I was reading that he had never really intended to be a genre filmmaker. Um, but when asked about his next project, this was his quote. It's a period film that takes place mostly on a boat between France and Quebec, a female led folk horror survival tale. It seems like the pandemic made me more of a genre filmmaker than I originally was. <laughs> I feel I can see that though. I mean, the state of the world was really bleak around the pandemic and a lot of, aside from a terrible illness going around, there was a lot of political stuff and social stuff going on in the world that was pretty yucky. So I can see how that could inspire, for lack of a better word, you to use some of those feelings you might have about that into your art. And to channel that into like this different genre. Um, one thing I want to mention that I was just, I, I love little details like this, um, that you don't need them for the film to work, but if you know them or learn about them after, it enhances the film. So throughout the film, Kellyanne is is online and her um, screen name is Lady Shallot or Lady Shallot. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a poem by Alfred Tennyson. It's a very famous poem, I guess, that I, I didn't know about beforehand. But the general plot of that poem is there's a woman who lives alone in a castle on an island and she is cursed to weave images on a loom without ever looking directly at the road or anything surrounding her. She has to stare into a mirror and that mirror reflects the window behind her where she can see people like going about their lives, but she can't actually look at them. Mm. Um, And they're described as like, I guess there's a line in the poem that calls them shadows of the world. And then she says, I am half sick of shadows And I won't say the rest of the poem because I think it ties too directly into the film itself, although very metaphorically, but I was just like, oh my goodness, that's hauntingly beautiful. This idea of like an obsession with true crime, an obsession with murder, an obsession with like the deepest, darkest parts of the web as being like akin to this like curse of looking into the mirror, but never actually looking at other people. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's reflected so well in, in, a lot of the um, artwork that's featured in advertising for the film and in the trailer, which are these just um, these shots where she's not actually staring at us. It's not like the shots in the close-ups in, say, Silence of the Lambs, where when Clarice and Hannibal are talking, it also feels like they're talking to us because she's looking down. Like she's mm-hmm. not really looking at just the slightest bits that she's not directly staring at us, but staring at a screen that's like, and, and it's projecting red on her. Um, 
feels like her looking in a mirror instead of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. And so I love little details like that that just show the clear thought and attention that went into all the aspects of the film. Mm -hmm. But the filmmaker and the other people involved in the film are okay to not need you to know it. Yeah. Like it's, it's not like not knowing that poem diminished an understanding of the film in any way. Oh yeah. But now reading about it after I'm like, wow, that's smart. Yeah. Real smart. Uh, last thing I just want to talk about with this movie is that I am absolutely in love with its cinematography. It was gorgeous. Vincent Byron, I think was his name. And he just knocked it out of the park. I mean, through, yeah, things like what you were just talking about, like the color, there's a specific scene between the characters of Kellyanne and Clementine that use the color magnificently. And the, the scene just plays out really powerfully. There's also this, um, this moment in the film where so much of the film has been, isolating and like like kind of these like drifting takes and great cityscapes and then all of a sudden there's like these quick cuts and like incredibly loud music like out of nowhere that Mm -hmm. like just like jars you and shifts you and that's being done purely through film technique like it's not being done through any like shock so impressive when i think what adds that too is that i've said multiple times on this show that i am a sucker for a oneer and this has so many sweeping oneers like it has long sequences especially in the courtroom in the opening yeah. of just going from one person to another and then focusing on something and we do that a few times it's like i said this to you afterward i'm like it's like it took notes from the cinematography of mr robot and they're like oh dark web stuff i know how to make that look <laughs> and it, it I i'm not sam last mail yeah and i'm not saying it ripped it off um but it and they certainly made it unique here but man chef's kiss just a gorgeously shot bleak film how did red rooms make you feel rattled by its beautifully shot depiction of humanity's bleakness how did it make you feel mesmerizingly disturbed this was a very disturbing film like i highly recommend it but only if you're okay feeling like your stomach was carved out of you oh god (laughs) yeah Okay, my mystery movie pick for the next one. And I chose to revisit Sweeney Todd, colon, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, or, colon, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Shave a Face. 2007, drama horror musical, directed by Timmy Burton, and written by John Logan, Hugh Wheeler, uh, who did the musical, and Christopher Bond, who wrote the musical adaptation. It's also based off of, uh, oh my God. His name just fell out of my butt. What's his name? Steven Sondheim. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> and it stars uh, Johnny Depp as Sweeney Todd, Helena Bonham Carter as Mrs. Lovett, Alan Rickman, R.I.P. as Judge Turpin, Timothy Spall as Beetle, uh, Jane Wisner as Joanna, and uh, Jamie Campbell Vecna Bauer as Anthony. Synopsis. The legendary tale of a barber who returns from wrongful imprisonment to 1840s London, bent on revenge for the assault and death of his wife, and assumes his trade while forming a sinister partnership with his fellow tenant, Mrs. Lovett. What do you think of this? So this is always going to be, I feel like anyone who's been listening for any length of time knows this, but if you're newer to the show and we've had a lot of new people lately which is exciting 
Um, then you might not know my complicated relationship with Johnny Depp, which is that I was wholesale obsessed with him from the time I was 13 till probably my early 20s. And what first kind of slowed the obsession was he just wasn't making films I was interested in anymore. Like I felt like the quality of his films well before the media storm and the controversy and the different people taking different sides. I just didn't think he was making good films and I was not impressed with him. And um, as someone who's a, when, and when you're obsessed with a celebrity, you also very unfairly sometimes feel like you can judge their personal lives. So I wasn't happy when he left Vanessa Perry. I was like, what happened to you being this like loving man who like had this longtime partner? And yeah, I had, I had stopped being obsessed with him a long time ago. And then, when everything happened in the media, I was just like, I'm done with this guy. So there's this really complicated thing where anybody who knew me from the years like 2003 to like 2010 probably thinks of Johnny Depp <laughs> when they think of me. Right. Because I didn't just like him. It was it was a deep entrenched part of my personality. Um, I met my also part of the bad dad, rad dad lore. Um my longtime best friend who ghosted me. Mm -hmm. um, we met on a Johnny Depp fan forum, which just goes to show you, don't meet your best friends on a Johnny Depp fan forum. They'll ghost you later on in life. <laughs> um, so I have this really complicated relationship when I go back and watch a film of his that I did like. And I feel like we worked through that a lot in the first time we watched Crybaby. But it still feels strange to watch something of his and be like, this meant so much to me when I don't really want to associate with him now. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's complicated. But in watching this, I'm like, damn, I like this movie. <laughs> yeah, I like it, too. I, I have a little story of I got this. I feel like I got it for like Christmas uh, when I was younger and it first came out. And my sister got the first season of Scrubs the same year. And I traded her my copy of Sweeney Todd <laughs> so that I could get the first season of Scrubs. And I never looked back. And then you owned it. So I win win. <laughs> Yeah, your parents really messed that up. My uh, my little brother got married this week. I'm telling the listener, you know this, Elliot. You were there. <laughs> I was there. Um, and I don't know if you know this, Elliot, but it's like a long running joke with between me and him. His name's Jared. That my mom can't get right which kind of cake we like. So I'm a chocolate cake kind of person, and he's a vanilla cake kind of person. And yet, through our whole lives, my mom would like do a vanilla cake on my birthday and a chocolate cake <laughs> on his birthday. And my sister made this really incredible wedding cake for um, Jared and his his wife, mm -hmm. Sam, that was half vanilla, half chocolate. And, and Jared and I had kind of a little like wink nod moment because I asked the server, like, could, could I have a piece of chocolate? And she was like, well, if there is any. And I was like, not again. <laughs> uh, and we said, uh, just so fun. Like throughout the year, we'd get what we wanted. So it feels like your parents really messed up in that kind of a way. In what world do you want Sweeney Todd and your sister wants scrubs? Like that just doesn't make sense. I don't know. There's a sick Because your sister's though. a Sweeney Todd type of gal. Yeah. But, you know, even though I did trade it away, I still quite like Sweeney Todd. Did you watch it for the first time with me? Mm, no. I watched it like I had seen it when I had gotten it. Oh, you were just like, I'd rather have scrubs. Here you go. Yeah. 100%. Um... It's not my absolute favorite thing in the world, but stylistically and song-wise and a few other things-wise that I'll get into, I, I quite enjoy it. I, I really like the tone, and I feel 
it still feels Tim Burton-y, but for me, this kind of starts to feel like his uh, transitional phase a little bit. Yeah, I was I was looking at his filmography because he is my most watched director on Letterboxd stats. Um, and I was looking, I, I felt, and I was like, is this the last good Tim Burton film? And then I looked and yes, it is. So this was, this came out, and, and I agree, it's, it's in a phase where he wasn't totally firing on all cylinders, like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I feel like I liked because Johnny Depp was in it, but I don't know that I would like it if I revisited it now. But after this comes Alice in Wonderland, which I decidedly hated. Like I was very excited for it. Yeah. And then I really didn't like it. And then Dark Shadows, which was not strong. Frankenweenie, which we've never watched in full. So Mm. reserving judgment on that. But then Big Eyes, which we were really disappointed in. And then we haven't seen the rest of his films. So then he made Miss Peregrine, which we didn't see and Dumbo, which we didn't see. Mm -hmm. But neither of which have been critically acclaimed and we watched one episode of wednesday which seemed like a bit of return to form but it's like the the storytelling and like the netflix storytelling wasn't really and he's also he's not the showrunner on it like i think they put his name on it he directed a couple episodes and i feel like he's a producer on it Mm -hmm. but it's not his show yeah yeah and like this is the beginning of him really getting into cg yeah, and that's worth, I mean, I think it's there a little bit in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it really hits hard in Alice in Wonderland where he's like gone full CG. And I feel like so much of the whimsy of his earlier films is the practical effects. Oh, yeah. And these like beautiful sets that feel lived in, like like in the way the Barbie movie does, right? Mm-hmm. Where like as a kid, I'm enamored with Beetlejuice because I want to go into that house. Yeah. I want to go into like the, the afterlife and wait in that waiting room. And, and I'm terrified of Edward Scissorhands because his castle feels scary. Mm -hmm. You turn that into CGI and all of a sudden you lose that tangibility and that feeling like you could walk into it. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, he just, he went astray. Now this, I think he originally intended it to be CGI. I read and then realized that wasn't going to work. And I find that this, it feels tangible in a theatrical way, like in a, in a, and which makes sense. It's based on a Broadway musical. Mm -hmm. It feels like a set, but it still feels real. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Next, I say, I would say that some of the songs in this are great. And we actually sing them around the house fairly Fairly regularly. regularly. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I often sing Pirelli's Miracle Elixir. Yeah, you do that. Um, And then sometimes Joanna. Joanna. Yeah. To shave it a face, I feel like I think of to shave it a face every once in a while when I'm shaving my face. <laughs> <laughs> and then I sometimes sing, um, oh, what is the one? You, sir. Two, sir. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the grave. Come on. Come on. <laughs> come and visit your good friend. Sweeney. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty fun. I mean, do you want to hear my story about seeing this movie? Yeah. Okay. So it came out when we were in grade 12. Okay, yeah. I've been obsessed with Johnny Depp for a number of years now. People know this. Mm-hmm. I was friends with a person who I wish nothing but good things for, but we were not compatible. Yeah. So I wrote this in my letterboxed review, but we we lived on compromise. Like she drove and I didn't. So she'd often pick the music in the car, but we'd be listening to Taylor Swift and she'd want to like paint our nails and watch Desperate Housewives and and read Cosmo together and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, let's watch a horror movie. Let's listen to Sonic 102.9. If you're from Edmonton, you get that. Um, 
we did the same thing with the movies. We're like, she made me go see four Christmases. Oh, yeah. So we'd kind of like go back and forth. Like you can pick this time. But unlike with me and you, where it was like, I'm picking this because I'm so excited to share it with you. It was like, it's my turn to pick something I will like. Mm. Do you get? Do you feel the difference in that? Yeah. Like I get to pick the music I want to listen to. And and I'm, I'm not saying we were approaching it in that way, but that was definitely the, okay, I withstood listening to Taylor Swift. Yeah, we got no. through this so we can get back to so we my get, thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so she went to Sweeney Todd with me because it was my pick of what movie to go to and she just hated it. And she was a big bubble burster about it. We had driven to the city to see it and she just complained about it the whole time. And mm. I ended up going and seeing it again with my dad who loved it. And I was like so excited to like watch it with somebody who wasn't going to be like, she hated it because it was like too violent. It wasn't because she like objectively didn't like the movie. She was just like, I can't believe you made me watch something that was like, I think she had been like hesitant about it and was like, I don't like horror movies. And I had said, it's not a horror movie. Like it's a musical. And then she was like, it was too bloody. It is pretty bloody, but it is like stylized blood. Oh yeah. I love it. I usually feel like that, can be something that people who aren't into horror movies are more okay with, but she wasn't happy about it. Um, my dad was, cause my dad liked good movies. That's my story. <laughs> no, that's, and now you like it. I do. I, I quite like it. I remember that, uh, I feel like the, how graphic it was took a lot of people by surprise. And like, that makes me, that fills me with joy a little bit. Like, I love that somebody probably took like, oh, it's a Tim Burton movie. I'm going to take the kids to it. Well, so the other thing was <clears throat> the thing about this movie that's so interesting to me is. I can't speak to Tim Burton's mind, but it feels like somewhere after this, he wasn't as like passionate about his projects. That's a good way to put it, because that's that's how I feel about it. That's and, a- and that's what it felt like in Johnny Depp's work, too. Like, well, before I stopped liking him as a human being. It was just like, it feels like you're just collecting paychecks. It doesn't feel like you're choosing projects you're excited about. And it felt similar to Tim Burton. And I don't know if that's like Alice in Wonderland just went off the rails and then he was like, whatever. But he, I feel like he was passionate about this one. And in reading about it, he was obsessed with the musical from the first time he ever saw it. So it came out in 1979 and he saw it when he was living in London in 1980 and was, um, this is a quote from him, dazzled both by its music and its sense of the macabre. And he ended up going three nights in a row. And he just like, I guess his whole career, he always had like one day I want to make Sweeney Todd. Mm. But he needed to get to a point where he had like financial backing to do it yeah. and to do it well. But in the actual musical, it's not bloody like that. I think they do the ribbon thing. Oh, yeah. Like, Which is like also a, cool. It's super fun. Like I've seen the musical once and it was phenomenal. Um but he said he wanted to change that. And and I really liked what he said about it, which is that he feels like in approaching the character of Sweeney, that Sweeney Todd is a man who is repressed and has pushed down his grief and pushed down his trauma. And the moments of cutting the throats are like an emotional release. Oh, yeah. And so he wanted the blood to represent that. Like all of this, he described like the way they wanted to make Sweeney look visually was like he was already dead. Yeah. Like that he is a walking corpse and he comes alive in those moments because he's like attending to his grief finally, even if it's not in a healthy way. Um, and I guess a lot of like the studio were like, we're not sure about this because the actual musical isn't bloody in that way. Like there's an implication of blood, but it's, it's in this very artistic way. Um, and he was like, nah, I got to do it this way. And he was particularly inspired by Kill Bill. 
Um, like he, mm. he had that as a reference point of the way that blood is used in that. He wanted it to be stylized over the top. The blood is like unnaturally vibrantly red. And well, I think it's amazing. Well, I mean, there is, I mean, this was literally a play. So everything about is very theatrical. And then I feel like this is also theatrical in its own way. Yeah. And yeah, no, it totally works for me. Um, and they did, they cut down a three hour play to a two hour movie. So it's. Just under two hours too. Yeah. Like so it's like, uh, really great. I guess both Stephen Sondheim and Tim Burton kind of went into this saying like, it's not a recreation. Like we're not just filming the musical. Mm-hmm. We're adapting this to a film. And so it needs to move like a film. It needs to feel like a film. And Stephen Sondheim was like, if you just approach it that way, you'll have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I, I think nail it. Absolutely. I also remember back in the day when this came out that the singing performances took a lot of shit, but, and I, I don't doubt it. I might've been part of that conversation too, but revisiting this now, I'm eating my words. Uh, I, I'm the one with egg on my face because I actually don't think that they're that bad. No, I mean, they're certainly not. It was funny. We went and watched a couple like YouTube clips of Broadway, like Angela Lansbury was the original Mrs. Lovett. Um, and I'm like, I don't think they're, that far off other than maybe in some moments where like you hit a high note and sustain it. Like, I feel like they don't have that, but so much of what's going on in these songs is um, character work. And there's like a voice to the, to the singing that, but you know what it's when I looked at this, I thought that this was like a panned film and it, it isn't people really like it and critics really like it. And it was nominated for a ton of golden globes and it won best musical or comedy and oh, wow. Johnny Depp won Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy. So, like, I feel like what we we, t- we were just talking about with the theatrics of it all. Like, I feel like Tim Burton built a world that his characters and the singing and the delivery of the songs just fit very seamlessly seamlessly into that world, the way that it does for the on stage play or the on stage musical. Yeah, I feel like it all just it all just works. And I think what, I mean, ultimately, I know that this is coming from Sondheim and and it's Tim Burton's just translation of it. But when I saw this for the first time, I wasn't familiar with like, Sweeney Todd is actually based on like, like literary, like Penny Dreadful type stuff from Mm. way back in the day. And then Stephen Sondheim kind of created this version that we all know so well. But I didn't know any of the story of Sweeney Todd when I saw it. And ultimately, this is such a Shakespearean story. Like it is a tragic like deeply tragic story that follows that like Shakespearean tragedy arc and the ending just gutted me. Oh yeah. It's a, beautiful, but it is like deeply sad. Oh yeah. As a kid, it blew my mind. You were 17. Kid. <laughs> As, you're talking about this. Like you were like toddler Elliot. No. <laughs> and you were not three in 2007. Um, and that was the thing that like when I saw it with my friend who didn't like it, like I was feeling so, moved by the ending and so emotional by the ending and then that bubble bursting of like well that movie was too violent right Mm. um so getting to go and see it with my dad who would like do the thing we do and just like give time and space after the movie was done to just kind of sit there and take it in and then talk about what we liked about it and how it made us feel that ending just still gets me and i i know that's coming from sondheim but i think tim burton did such a great job with it yeah 100 percent agree just a couple stray thoughts that I had. Just like poor Timmy Spall, who plays Beetle, where the casting notes are probably like, we need an English sniveling rat face to timing fuck. Oh, how about that guy who literally plays a rat in Harry Potter? Yeah, how about Peter Pettigrew? <laughs> yeah. 
He is either Rosencrantz or Guildenstern in Kenneth Branagh's version of Hamlet. Oh, yeah. Nice. Who's, I mean, those characters are also kind of rats, but not in a like creepy, gross way. They're yeah. just like snitches. <laughs> yeah. Um, you said this at one point and I felt it the whole way through. I'm like, it is that it is just such a shame that Johnny Depp is such a fuck and he's done what he's done because he's very schmexy. Yeah, I mean, he was. There's a reason you had a crush on him. There's, yeah, like I, I, I kept, I keep using the words obsessed, but like I wanted desperately to kiss him, you know. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, he's got a magician's body without having a magician's body. Yeah, he's not a particularly tall guy. Mm-hmm. He's like five ten ish, but mm-hmm. yeah, he's a handsome man, but a shit dude. Yeah. So you Hel- know, Helena is Babley in this as well. I love her. Yeah. I mean, she's she's great and. She's great in like all the things she's been in that I've seen. Yeah. And it's so funny to see the boy, Anthony, as Vecna now after watching Stranger Things. I think when we were watching that season of Stranger Things and you see like Vecna in human form, I was like, that's that boy. That's that guy from Sweetie Todd. <laughs> that's I'll steal you. Joanna. Which you did point out is quite creepy. Yeah, um, but you know, steal me, goodness! <laughs> Bury your face in my yellow hair. Get out of here! <laughs> <laughs> I think Joanna was just using him to to get away, and then she's like, "Bye." <laughs> I'm not bearing nothing and nothing. Yeah, no, I I wanted to kind of stick with horror adjacent, but add a little fun to it by picking a musical. It was fun to revisit this. Yeah, achieved. It's, I think it's a good movie. I was surprised by how much I still liked it and then surprised when I read that other people really like it too. And it has like a 3.5 on Letterboxd, which I think is pretty high. Yeah. Um, check it out. Check it out if you haven't seen it. How'd it make you feel? Surprisingly impressed by this high school favorite. You? Yeah. Uh, just happy to dive into this morally pig spit worthy vermin inhabited hole in the world. There's no place like it. Okay. We had a, we had a sad... Because as we talked about last week, we had a sad sad. Um, Metro Cinema was doing a one two punch of ring ringu, the original Japanese version of the ring and then the American remake of the ring one week apart. And then I got sick (laughs) and as one should, I stayed home while I was sick. Uh, and so we we ended up watching The Ring at home. We were also going to go see I Know What You Did Last Summer with a couple of friends. Um, and we just decided we we weren't going to force ourselves to do a double feature. And we just watched The Ring. So it was sad not to see it in the theater, but we revisited it anyway. It's a 2002 horror mystery film directed by Gore Verbinski, written by Aaron Kruger, and it's based on the novel by Koji Suzuki and the original screenplay by Horshi Takahasha. Stars Naomi Watts as Rachel, Martin Henderson as Noah, Brian Cox as Richard Morgan, David Dorfman as Aiden, and Devay Chase as Samara. Synopsis. A journalist must investigate a mysterious videotape which seems to cause the death of anyone one week to the day after they view it. What do you think of The Ring? I feel like we really hyped this movie up last week, and it had been a while since we revisited it. And I... I I kind of walk back my thoughts a little bit. I have I have a few thoughts on it. So first of all, I was really excited to dive back into this, especially after revisiting Ring You last week. This movie scared the piss out of me when I was younger. I think that's a lens with which 
both of us are approaching this film with that causes us to be like unable to be totally objective. Like I see a lot of like people, especially when comparing it to Ringu rating it really low. And I just, this is such an important part of my like horror journey that I, I can't not like it. Yeah. Same. I want to, I want us to share first time that we saw it. You go first. I saw it in the theater which is wild. (laughs) So I saw it with my mom who doesn't like horror movies and my second oldest sister who doesn't like horror movies and never did. Mm -hmm. Like my oldest sister was like willing to try them. Like her and I watched uh, house of a thousand corpses together. And I think she showed me scream when I was younger. She doesn't really like horror now, but like my mom and my other sister never liked horror. So I don't know why they took me to this. I asked my sister at Thanksgiving and she was like, I don't remember seeing that together. And I'm like, okay, well, I do. She's like, we probably did. Mom probably wanted popcorn is what she said. <laughs> so probably true. But I would have been 12, which is, I mean, an appropriate age to be starting to like look at horror more seriously. But this is a pretty scary movie for a 12 year old. Like we have a niece who's just about to turn 12 and I feel like this would scare the shit out of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's like a perfect age to not scare you off. Like, if I feel like if I saw The Ring when I was, like, four, <laughs> I would have been traumatized. Yeah. So I saw it in the theater, and it destroyed me. Mm-hmm. I don't know when is the appropriate time to say this, but it has the scariest moment in any movie ever for me. Yeah, we'll get to, we'll get we'll get to, to it later? Okay. Yeah. So that killed me. But then the other part about this is, like, The Ring is very different because it's pulling from the original Japanese version where horror is doing something much different than what was going on for the most part in America, it has this like sadness to it as well. And I remember just being like moved by the story, like by these reveals that were happening. The climactic scene is like so exciting and so horrifying and so satisfying all at the same time. And so like it moved me as a story but also terrified me and and I never looked back like horror was my thing from that point on. Yeah. Like I I kind of felt that way too and I'll get into my first time watching it in a second but this felt like it was kind of kicking off the post 9/11 era of horror. Yes. And yes, it was this kind of focus on really creepy really stirring but also profoundly sad. Yes. And I feel like, yeah, like that was kind of the first in the series of the films that would come in the odds. In terms of my first time seeing it, though, I watched it. I didn't see it in the theater, but there was a group of friends that I was hanging out with over spring break at the time. And I think that we rented it or bought it on VHS. And we watched it on a little TV in my, my friend's room. We were all sitting on the floor to watch it. And before it gets to the movie on the VHS tape, it would play the tape, like Samara's tape. Oh, yeah, I know. And uh, yeah, like it scared the piss out of us. We're like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) And then the movie starts. It was it was traumatizing for all of us. It it, it genuinely got got uh, under our skin and messed us up. But I, I loved it so much. And. The fact that it like fucked me up so much. Yeah, it played such a big role in my horror movie journey and has been just a little bookmark. Yeah, it's a, it's a staple. Like I feel like prior to seeing The Ring, 
I had dabbled in horror, but it had scared me too much. Like I saw the others in the theater with my dad and my sisters the year before, mm-hmm. and it was too scary. Right. Like I wasn't ready yet. Um, and I had seen like kind of horror adjacent things and liked them like the Tim Burton oeuvre. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was the first like genuinely horrifying film that I saw and loved on my own. and was like that scared me so much, but I also loved it. And then I became an incredibly annoying person who like forced my friends to watch it when they were too scared, <laughs> including we have a, a, an old mutual friend who really doesn't like horror movies um, who you worked with at the movie theater. Mm. And I made her watch it with a couple of friends. And then we timed somebody calling no, right so after. Rude. Yeah. Not nice of me. And then I also, I'm going to say from like 2002 until 2008, no word of a lie. My voicemail on my phone was seven days. <laughs> and like I recorded it from the film. Brilliant. So it'd be like ring, 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 seven days. <laughs> So, yeah, this movie was a big part of my identity. <laughs> That's so good. Um, let's talk about the big moment in this movie. Um, like the scary? Yeah. Uh. So it's the the image that's on screen for, I don't know, two, maybe three seconds that is preceded with the line, I saw her face. It's an image that's seared into my memory yeah. and will haunt me forever. It literally just moved the atoms of my soul. Yeah, completely agree. Because it was, <laughs> it's not, it is a jump scare because you don't necessarily expect it coming and it, there's a music sting at the same time. But it's the imagery that's so deeply disturbing and it's done with practical effects, which I think is so smart. Yeah. If it had been like a dumb CGI thing, I probably wouldn't have been as as disturbed. Although I do... Tim Burton's coming up a lot in this. That moment scares me the way the witch in Sleepy Hollow scares me. Mm -hmm. This one's worse, but I saw Sleepy Hollow earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, I've watched The Ring a lot since 2002, and I usually close my eyes. Like, (laughs) like as soon as Naomi Watts starts talking to her sister, I just, like, keep my eyes closed the whole time. Well, as soon as that started happening this time, we're like, here we fucking go. (laughs) (laughs) But I've learned to not do it, to, like, embrace it. It still deeply upsets me. Oh, it is so upsetting. There's um, a writer for Bloody Disgusting named Matt Donato, who I'm going to read some of the things that he's very thoughtfully said about the differences between Ringu and the Ring from like a thematic and cultural level. Mm -hmm. But he ends his his piece by saying that, um, quote, I'll never be able to watch that Katie jump scare without reacting a wince, a sigh, anything. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I was kind of doing a little bit of Googling when I was writing my notes. And uh, there there was like somebody, a couple people that posted on Reddit. They're like, did this moment in the ring fuck anyone else up for the rest of their yeah. life? <laughs> All of us. Yeah. Deeply, deeply upsetting. And I think that's the what's so tricky about thinking about this in terms of Ringu when you saw the ring first is they both still follow a similar narrative yeah. and that narrative is so compelling. Yeah. And that narrative comes from a book, which I think is part of why it's so compelling. It's yeah. from like a deeply developed internal story, right? That story is so good that I think whichever version of it you see first is going to get you mm-hmm. and that's going to be important to you. But then the American version of the ring goes for some like more obvious scares and so from for some more obvious disturbing imagery which I think is so like locked into our little preteen horror DNA mm-hmm. that like 
we sometimes miss it when we see Ringu, even though in watching these two a week apart, Ringu is the superior film. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt now, like reflecting on both of them while having watched them both so closely together is that I, I appreciate both of them so much in their own unique ways. And I agree. I think that Ringu is the superior film because, yeah, this, it, it, especially near the end of The Ring, you start to feel the American Hollywood machine a little bit. Yeah. But what I really appreciate about this version of The Ring is that the tone is quite different than Ringu. Like, they really establish this dark, imposing whole world that could just crumble on you. And it, you're, it's like you're living in your own a little wordplay, your own personal well. <laughs> well, th- somebody described it. I, I don't know where I got the, I think this is from Matt Donato's uh, article that he wrote. Um, He described the color palette. He said it, so like there's a very distinct cinematic lens over this in that it's like blue and green, mm-hmm. mostly blue. So he described it as, quote, it cools the mood in a water-like hue that highlights the downtrodden atmosphere of environmental wetness and atmospheric duress. Yeah. It's not like in a saw way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's deeply, effectively stylistic. Yeah. Where like it feels wet. It feels cold. It feels like you're chilled to the bone. Yeah. There's a wetness stylistically in the ring that isn't there in Ringu, Mm -hmm. you know, culminating in the fact that like Samara's hair is wet and Sadako's is not. Mm -hmm. But Sadako's fingernails get me every time. (laughs) So, you know, there's things on either side. I want to read a couple of the things that Matt Donato said about the two different versions, which he likes both like us. Mm hmm. Um, so one of the things he said, quote, is that Verbinski doesn't disgrace Nakata's signatures nor waste an opportunity to shine a light on Ringu. The ring works because what is inherently in, what is inherently terrifying about Ringu is present. But Verbinski assures individuality through a lens meant to serve American audiences. Yeah, 100 percent. Basically, just what we're what we're saying and exactly how I'm feeling. Like- but then he describes the American ring. And I think we would agree here as meaner, nastier and more vis- visually sharp. Mm-hmm. than the original Ringu. And he's, he talks specifically about like if you compare the two tapes. So in Ringu, he says the tape is, quote, a montage of naturalistic black and white vignettes, while the American tape, quote, goes for the kill with slithery centipedes, rotting livestock, cor- livestock corpses, and hardware nails puncturing fingers. He then goes on to say, quote, Nakata invites the audience to imaginatively run wild with horrors that aren't explicitly visible, where Verbinski plays to American demographics who want to see everything up close and personal without a shadow of a doubt. So he ultimately kind of concludes that Ringu is more morally nuanced, Mm -hmm. whereas the American ring is more black and white in terms of good and evil and what's scary and what's not. Yeah. And I mean, both work for sure. But yeah, it is definitely... it's that American horror movie machine a little bit of like, we're going to put it all on display for you here and we're going to spell things out, make things a little bit more black and white for you. And again, that's evident in the ending where Ringu kind of leaves a bit of a question mark for the audience really effectively and brilliantly, I think. Whereas it's almost like they, they were when they were going to tell this story in this American version, they were kind of like, Mm, I think we need more closure, maybe more explanation, maybe some more scares in line with what was earlier in the film. At least that's how I was feeling on this watch. 
Yeah, and I feel like the the plot is just way more convoluted in the American one. Like, again, Ringu allows the viewer to, like, make connections and trust them that they will. Yes. Without, like, I, I think about just, like, the relationship with the kid and the the ex-boyfriend. Yeah. It's, like, a, a lot more, like, we trust you to understand what's going on here, whereas there's, like, such an extension to the runtime by making sure we understand that that's his dad. And that they might get yeah. back together and like all this kind of stuff that just I don't think is necessary. And this like additional plot of like going to the like mental institution, like going to the asylum or what the psychiatric. I'm not using the right words. But, you know, like it's all just too much. It's all just yeah. not needed. And I also think um, I personally think that Ringu more effectively creates Sadako as a figure of complexity. Whereas in watching The Ring this time, I feel like when I saw it when I was young and therefore felt this in every subsequent viewing, I don't actually think Samara's that evil. Mm-hmm. I feel bad for her. But this, in watching it this time, I'm like, oh, they don't want me to. Mm-hmm. Like some of the things that Aiden says near the end of the film suggest that like I shouldn't feel bad for her. Yeah. And I don't like that. No. And that's, Yeah. You've put that really well. Like the American one doesn't really trust its audience. I mean, like they literally have a sequence where a character like Noah spells out something about film and then Naomi Watts just like is like, can you not can you say that in not film geek for me? Yeah, there's a lot of exposition. Yeah, like they set up a lot of exposition because they clearly want to explain everything to the American audience so that nothing is left up to them. And that's just again, that's just a level of trust that the American version doesn't have where the Japanese version does. And I even, there's a, a scene with buckets in the original <laughs> film and you asked me if I missed it in this one and I said no. And then in reflecting on it, I'm like, I actually think I do. I was reading an article that said that that scene establishes, or like not establishes, but like kind of solidifies so much about the relationship between the two key characters in the film and how they work together and 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 like the distress and and all of that stuff in the original one. And then this just goes for like a cheap scare. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I, uh, I, I agree with that. So previously we'd always watch these very far apart from each other and watching them so close together, I think makes me continue to appreciate how much this American version of the ring mattered to my like love of horror and like I don't think I would have gotten to ring you if Gore Verbinski hadn't made the ring. Mm-hmm. Like he brought and I think he loved the original ring. Mm-hmm. Right. And he brought that to American audiences for better or worse. I think it did some yeah. really great things in like causing people to be like, well, I want to go see the original and I want to, and then I'm going to seek out international horror, but it also set off a string of really, really shit American remakes of like other films of which Naomi Watts has, has and continues to be a part of. So she was in the American funny games, which is a different beast because Michael mm-hmm. Haneke made it. She was also recently in Goodnight Mommy, and apparently it's just the American one is just garbage. Yeah, she's the remake queen. I mean, kind of just to wrap up my thoughts on this, I just really enjoy that we do have two versions of this. And I I I'll I'll revisit both in the future. Oh, me too. I'm not gonna stop watching this one, even though Ringu is clearly better. 
I think they both give me something that I want at different points in my life. And I think that's perfect. I think that that is kind of the balance you want from a remake is that you want something that does tonally, structurally feel different so that you can watch both and get two different experiences and two different feelings from them. And I think that the fact that they were successful in doing that here, at least for me, makes me very happy. I agree. I like them both. I definitively think Ringu is stronger, but they both matter a lot to me. I agree. How does the ring make you feel? Rightfully chilled and appreciative. How does it make you feel? Makes me feel a deep foundational horror love and horror dread. Ah, yes. Okay. What a gift from the universe that we had a Friday the 13th in October of all times. And our favorite place in the world, Metro Cinema, was playing the 19... Oh no, I have the wrong year. What year is it? 1980. That they were playing the 1980 original Friday the 13th, a horror mystery thriller. It was directed by Sean S. Cunningham and written by Victor Miller and Ron Kurz. It stars Betsy Palmer as Mrs. Voorhees, Adrian King as Alice, Janine Taylor as Marcy, Robbie Morgan as Annie, Kevin Bacon as Jack, Harry Crosby as Bill, Laurie Betram as Brenda, and Mark Nelson as Ned. Synopsis is a group of camp counselors trying to reopen a summer camp called Crystal Lake, which has a grim past, are stalked by a mysterious killer. Whoa. What'd you think of Friday the 13th? Friday the 13th is so weird for me because I've just never been interested in it. Yeah. Like, as someone who loves horror, has, like, decidedly loved horror since I was 12 years old and, like, had a horror sensibility since I was a toddler. Mm-hmm. I've just never really been that interested in watching the Jason movies. And I mean, granted, I've never really been that interested in watching like, like I love a nightmare on Elm street, but I've seen none of the sequels mm-hmm. except for you made me watch Freddy versus Jason. <laughs> but, <laughs> and that is also, I've only seen three Jason movies and that's my favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> Freddy versus Jason wild. But like the, even within that, I've seen a nightmare on Elm street, like, so many times I've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre so many times I've seen like I think every West like early West Craven film and yet I've never been that interested in Friday the 13th and I can't really explain why we watched it once when we lived in the first place that we had moved out in together so that would have been sometime between 2012 and 2016 mm-hmm. um And I remember we watched it. It was on TV, like on cable. Yeah. And then we were like, wow, that was so boring and tame. But it was because we'd watched a TV edit. Yeah. So like all the sex and kills were like taken out. (laughs) I think we like YouTubed after like some of the Yeah, I think like the Kevin Bacon one. Yeah. Yeah, We're like, oh, that's like. That's pretty sick. Yeah, pretty good. Um, And then so that kind of like left a sour taste in my mouth, which isn't the movie's fault. But I've just never really been a Jason guy. Yeah, I I think. I'd say you and I aren't Jason guys. No. Um, yeah, same thing for me. When I was young and going to get seven movies for seven nights for seven bucks and I'd rent seven horror movies, Friday the 13th was never one of them and I never considered getting it. It wasn't something I, I tried chasing. I, I was very aware of who Jason was and the yeah, lore of yeah, Jason Voorhees. Agreed. 
but yeah, it just, it wasn't it. And, and I was kind of thinking about this and reflecting on this after we watched Friday the 13th this time. And I feel like it just doesn't satisfy what I like about slasher movies. I agree. Like, I think that I lean more into, if we're going like straight slasher, I really like a ghost face. I really like a Michael Myers. I really like like a strangers or something like that. But like just like big hulking supernatural guy, the machete. Well, this is, not, and I mean, this it. is the interesting thing because he's not in that. He's not like Jason, yeah. big hulking guy with a hockey mask and a machete isn't in the original Friday the 13th. Yes. Yeah, scream spoils this movie for you if you've seen Scream. But I mean, even without that, I feel like you can just know that that character isn't in this. And I think that's so fascinating that they obviously look to build that iconic killer that Mm -hmm. can be a part of a like franchise after this film is already done. Mm -hmm. I think there's a part of me that's like, well, I hate that. Mm -hmm. Because what makes Nightmare on Elm Street so good is Freddy Krueger. What makes Halloween so good is Michael Myers. What makes... Texas Chainsaw Massacre so good as Leatherface, right? Yeah. I mean, that's reductive. There's obviously so many other amazing things about those movies. But Jason isn't in this in mm-hmm. the way that like, you iconically know of Jason. Yeah. And then the other thing about it is prior to even watching the TV edit for this in like the early 2010s, I had seen the ending. I knew the ending, right? It's spoiled for you if you've seen Scream. Um but I had like literally seen the jump scare mm-hmm. and I had seen like clips of the like reveal of who the killer is. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the best part of the movie. Yeah. I think that it's actually pretty bad at being a slasher. Yeah. But the ending is, is interesting. And, you know, I, I've read a lot of people saying like the last 20 minutes is like high camp. Yeah. But the rest of the movie isn't. The rest of the movie, like it isn't, good and it doesn't seem to really attempt to want to be good like no the way that the nightmare on elm street gives us a nancy like somebody who we can get behind and who we can root for and who is just our guiding light through that story is so strong and even the characters surrounding her are really strong and you hate to see stuff happen to them whereas this one is just kind of like it, it the trailer does it. Yeah. It's just a checklist of all Killing of people the people off. and how and when they're gonna get killed. Like so, you can you can feel that in the movie, and then in going to read about this, that's because that's why they made it. Like these folks, specifically like Sean S. Cunningham, the director, was like, "Halloween made money. Let's recreate that." Like there wasn't a passion, it seems, for it. It was just like, "Let's capitalize on that success." Mm-hmm. And really, what was going on is like let's pastiche other things we've seen so they were trying to emulate halloween by being like a slasher with like teenagers who get killed Mm -hmm. they stole like very specifically the people involved have said we stole the idea from jaws of having a musical sting that cues you to the fact that the killer is there it's a great musical sting it is a great musical sting and it's used to good effect and then um they stole from carrie like they, they have said that like we we thought that's a good ending and Carrie we need a chair jumper and so we're going to do an ending like that. So you know there was a there's a film critic named Scott Meslow that this is a quote from him 
Why did it make a splash? Theories abound, but here's mine. It succeeded because it was brazen enough to steal so many tricks from the many brilliant horror films that came before it. But it ends up being this pastiche that doesn't really work. Like, we'll take the smart thing from this and from this and from this and like Frankenstein it together. Yeah. And it ends up being alive, but it dead at the same time. Yeah. And sometimes dead is better. Sometimes dead (laughs) is better. We learned that last week. And I mean, even in, I was reading about the cast I guess that in talking about the kids they wanted to cast, uh, they said, we just need actors that, quote, look good, read the dialogue somewhat well and work cheap. Man, and you can feel that. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Maybe if you've watched however many there are in this series after this, maybe that you just gain a better understanding, love, passion for for this one. But this doesn't inspire me to want to go and watch no. all of these Friday the 13th movies. Well, and our good friend and horror movie expert, Lori from the podcast, queer horror cult um, said to me that the best ones are two, three and six. And I'm like, okay, I believe you. And I know people like these movies and I know people like Jason, mm-hmm. but I don't, this movie didn't make me want to go watch two, three and six. Yeah, we will one day, I am sure, but I'm not excited about it. Whereas I am (laughs) excited to go and watch the Nightmare on Elm Streets I haven't seen. Yeah, like I don't doubt that the majority of them are dog shit, but I'm I like Freddy Krueger as a character and dream logic scares the piss out of me. So I'm already in from that perspective. But yeah, like this, this, this movie again, like it doesn't really give us anything to hold on to because yeah, you, Jason is not a part of it and we don't have any memorable characters that can take us. We don't have a Laurie Strode that we can hold on to and consider a scream queen or anything like that. Um, yeah, I think I, I want to say too, won't spend too much time on this. I think it's very cool that Metro did this, but the experience at Metro was not it. And I'm so, I'm like, I don't know if I'm just a grumpy grumpus because a few friends I have or like mutuals I have on Instagram have like, they were there and I didn't know it. And they were like, so much fun. And like the letterbox reviews of people who were there were like, it was so much better with like an audience that like had a good time. And I'm like, am I just a grouch? I don't know because like there's, we've been going to a lot of John Waters movies and culty John Waters movies. And there's a difference between cheering and whooping and hollering during key moments in Mm -hmm. a movie and then just breaking out into full conversation and talking over the movie the whole time. Which is what this felt like. Like it, every time there was a kill. And let me tell you, the deaths are few and far between and like the deaths are good, but there's nothing going on in between the deaths. Yeah. And it's not, to me, it wasn't all that scary. And maybe it wasn't scary because people were talking. But like a character would die and then there would just be like, like people would cheer and then all of a sudden there would just be like chatter. Yeah, just talking at full volume. And like I love when Metro sells out a show because I want that for them. Yeah. But when you have 500 people and like even half of them are talking, mm-hmm. that's a lot of people. And I think I was particularly grouchy because um, I've been combating that by using the concert earplugs that our friend Elliot gave me so kindly and it's really been working for me 
but the audio in Friday the 13th isn't good enough to like dampen. Mm. Um, like I tried it and I was just like, I can't hear what anybody's saying. It's hard enough to hear it even without that. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't, I couldn't do anything myself, you know? Yeah. And it's not like there was just like one offender. So I don't know. Maybe, don't know. maybe we are just turning into, because we go to so many movies, we're just turning to old pee pee poo poo heads about like, just like shush, <laughs> just stop talking. Yeah. People were like, it was so fun. And I feel like, I feel like some of that energy and people feeling that way is coming from a like, oh, it feels like I chose a bad movie to watch in my living room and shit talk it with friends. Mm-hmm. But I kind of wish then that like that was what was advertised by Metro because they actually some one of the employees came up at the start and said, I don't want to see your cell phones. And like we love audience interaction, but this isn't the film for it. Like this isn't the room. Mm-hmm. And yet then people treated it like it was. And I'm like, you know. I'm always on board for it when I know that's what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Like even when we see Rocky Horror Picture Show or The Room, people aren't like having conversations. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a grouchy grouch, but. I don't know. I'm with you on the grouchy grouch train. And then the other thing that makes me a big grouchy grouch is that they kill a snake on screen and it's real. Yeah. Unnecessary. And that's, I mean, the scene is not that important. You have fucking Tom Savini who does these, like he amazingly puts an ax in a girl's face and makes it look sick as fuck. He can't make a dead snake. Yeah. Like why? And I, I guess that there's just not enough concrete knowledge about what happened, but the story goes according to screen rant that the snake handler didn't know they were going to kill the snake and oh. it was inconsolable when it happened. Well, Yeah. That's fucked. I, I don't I mean, like I don't know if it's more true. I don't care. But <laughs> it's it's absolutely awful. I just want to read a couple um sound bites from like critics at the time that I think summarize what I would say about it. So mm-hmm. um first of all, Betsy Palmer, who plays Mrs. Voorhees, believed that the movie was quote a piece of shit, <laughs> but needed a new car. So that also tells you like how people felt about this this movie. Um, but here's a couple of sound bites from critics at the time. Bill Von Maurer says, quote, after building terrific suspense and turning over the audience stomachs, he doesn't quite know where to go from there. The movie begins to sag in the middle and the expectations he has built up begin to sour a bit. Mm-hmm. Lou Sendrone says, quote, a shamelessly bad film, but then Cunningham knows this. That's sad. <laughs> um, and Marilyn Ericchio said, Quote, Friday the 13th is minimal on plot, suspense, and characterization. It's not very original or very scary, but it is very low budget. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. I feel like I feel like people who love it love it in a like it's bad and I love it kind of way. Yeah. And I'm not here for that. I'm not a The Room person. I'm not a Cade, whatever that guy's oh, name yeah. is. I'm not a that kind of person. So I don't know. Friday the 13th ain't it for me. Likewise. How does it make you feel? Disappointed by this snoozy slasher. <laughs> you? Uh, reflective on my slasher film, yays and nays. Let's go somewhere way better. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this. So we had watched a whole lot of movies made by white men, and we are committed to not solely watching movies written and directed by people who have voices and have... um the ability to make films a little bit more easily was happy to watch a Quebecois film. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, Kate got to, I got to find a film made by a woman and and preferably a woman of color because that's a commitment that we've made outside of the podcast. It's just something that we do in our regular lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I picked a movie that didn't have a particularly high rating on letterbox, but I'm like, let's give it a chance. 
I picked Hisera, the Bone Woman, which came out in 2022. It's a horror drama. It was directed by Michelle Garza Cervera and written by her and Abia Castillo. It stars Natalie Solian as Valeria, Alfonso Dussel as Raul, Mayra Battaglia as Octavia, and Mercedes Hernandez as Isabel. The synopsis is Valeria's joy at becoming a first-time mother is quickly taken away when she's cursed by a sinister entity. As danger closes in, she's forced deeper into a chilling world of dark magic that threatens to consume her. What did you think of Husera, the Bone Woman? Um, this is one I, I I hadn't even heard of, and until you showed me afterward what the artwork looked like, I was like, oh, okay, I've seen this poster, but I don't know anything about it. Um. I won't bury the lead. I fucking love this movie. I thought it was so good. I got that feeling that I both love yet makes me nervous where about halfway through the movie, I'm like, I may be watching one of my favorite things I've seen. And I really hope. <laughs> please stick the landing. Yeah, please don't fuck it up. I just think that this was so strong in terms of storytelling and how it unfolds. It speaks to things like growing up, parenthood what we should and should not do in order to earn happiness in adulthood and just where it nets out by the end, I just thought was pitch perfect. Yeah. This is one of those moments. I, I also felt what you feel in that as it was going on, I'm like, I love this. Yeah. Like, why does this only have a 3.3 on letterbox? This is like, is it going to like end up being bad and, and like, fail in the potential it had. And and no, I, I thought it was amazing from start to finish. I think that the ending is phenomenal. Um, and it just made me reflective about like, this is what horror is for. Like horror is there to explore the things that culturally are too difficult to say blatantly. Yeah. I think you were reading me like a quote from the director, maybe about saying that exact thing. Like- well, she said she, um, she kind of ended up working with this writer by accident. They were working on like a different thing for like their regular jobs, mm. which I think are involved in film, but not their own projects. Right. And they got like put together in like a hotel where they had to share a room and they ended up like just vibing. <laughs> um, and she said about the two of them that like they both wanted to make an entertaining film that's also political, but that they wanted to do it in a way that quote hides the vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> or like the politics <laughs> or the vegetables in like the tasty meal. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I love, I thought that was so cute. Yeah. Um, really, really great. But like that's, I feel like this film does that so well. It looks at specifically, it's looking at like women's relationship to motherhood and pregnancy and the expectations of like being a wife and mother or like maternal partner um expectations of family and of society absolutely and it does it in such a smart complex nuanced way that i'm just going to be an asshole here and i i'm going to say i think that's why it has a low rating because people can't handle it because they like i was looking at the low ratings and it was the people who are giving it one are like good movie but i don't like the choices she made yeah and i'm like and that's exactly why this movie needs to exist yeah i personally felt so seen by this movie I felt it was yeah. such a smart, smart movie. I immediately was like, I desperately want to teach this in grade 12 and I'll never be allowed to because <laughs> A, it's too scary and B, it's quite sexual. Um, but I was feeling like it would fit so well into a unit that I do where I always teach A Doll's House, a play by Henrik Ibsen from the 1800s. Um, and then I sometimes teach The Yellow Wallpaper. I sometimes teach The Painted Door. 
there's so clearly references to the yellow wallpaper in here. And I felt like it was in a lineage with a doll's house. And then I read a review from um, the filmmaker where she said that she was specifically referencing a doll's house. And I'm like, ah, amazing. Um, So smart. And I just feel like she's creating this conversation with other staples in film and literature that are about motherhood and saying like, I'm in this conversation with you, but I'm pushing it in a new direction. Mm -hmm. So brilliant. Like I fucking loved this movie. And on top of all of the, the real smart things that it's trying to say, the creepiness was top tier. It's the stuff like in the ring. It's the stuff that gets under my skin. Like as soon as that stuff started happening through very strong visuals and very strong sound design. Mm -hmm. I was just like immediately like, Oh no, (laughs) this, this is giving me the chilies. Yeah. You were, you were having some like, ah, (laughs) please no. (laughs) It's that wonderful, like combination of creepy imagery, beautiful cinematography, smart story, but then there's like other emotional core to it. Right. Like where there is a sadness and there is a, a like realism to what's going on that's like deeply important. Um Garza Cervera said that she start she became obsessed with this like Mexican folklore figure of La Hisera or the Bone Woman. She also plays in a punk band. Of course. Um and she was writing like songs for her band about like La Hisera. Um and her she was losing her mother. Her mother was sick and dying at the time and then that channeled its way. Like she said she just became obsessed with this figure. And then that made its way into this film. Uh, And she wanted to explore something other than like women who have complicated relationships and feelings about motherhood. She, she said that she feels like they're often either depicted as lonely and sad or monsters or that they just haven't like had the connection they need to like tap into their maternal instinct. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to explore something different from that while touching on how that's the expectation. Mm hmm. So smart. Well, I think something too, I I hadn't talked with you about this, but I feel like the themes of the movie are set up so perfectly in the opening sequence, like the cold open of the film, where it's like this beautiful hike up to this amazing statue. And there is the suggestion of like this, our main character, Valeria, who is wanting to get pregnant is like seeking a blessing. And then we pan out to this beautiful shot, but all you hear in the background is like war sounds. Yeah. It's, it's, we talked about this when it was done that this is a film we want to revisit and we feel like we're going to get so much, like we already got so much out of it, but we're going to understand it more on an intellectual level on a second viewing. Like this film is so well crafted. It's cinematic, cinematically beautiful. It's so purposeful in like it's shots, it's cuts, its themes, its visual threads. Mm-hmm. Um, and something like thinking about Red Rooms, like, this is why I said it's such a good bookend because I mm-hmm. think they're both so incredibly well-made and yet not as seen as maybe they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, like with Red Rooms having that, the Lady of Shalott and not like knowing what it means. And this too, there's a, you know, we don't live in Mexico. We haven't been to Mexico and we don't know a ton of Mexican culture. That area where she goes at the very beginning of the film, it's a... Um, statue of la virgin de guadalupe which is like an important figure and i guess the colors associated with her are green and yellow which Mm. is there's a baby blanket in the film that's like a central essential essential piece of like thematic and literal like 
meaning within the text mm -hmm. that kind of inverts the traditional Mexican association with those two colors through mm -hmm. that figure of the Virgin, a la Virgin de Guadalupe. Um, she also said that she wanted to make primary colors terrifying, that that was like a goal. <laughs> and I'm like, it, it That's succeeded. Fun. That's fun. Like, I love that thinking of like, I have all of this stuff. I have all of these meanings and motifs but above everything, I also want to make primary colors. <laughs> so good. I was. It's also, I didn't know, it's queer. Yeah, when it reveals itself as a queer movie on top of all of this other stuff, it's like, oh. Uh, check, check, check. Thank you. I don't know. It was so, it was so good. It was like everything I want from a horror film. A um, couple like things that other uh, critics have said about it that I thought were really smart. So Manuel Betancourt said that it's, quote, a fable of modern motherhood, of calcified feminist ideas about domesticity and women's agency. It offers a Mexican folklore spin on horror classics like the Babadook, Hereditary, and Rosemary's Baby. Totally. I don't love, like, just shoving someone in with that. And I think that this movie does even more than that. But I do think it's, I think that uh, Garza Cervera is, like, very purposefully in conversation with those films. Yeah. And like, I don't feel like she's trying to do her own version of it. I think she's saying you've made these and now here's me speaking back. Yeah. And that's how I view it. I view it as by that person saying that, that is the in for people who love those movies. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then this one I thought was just beautifully said. So Natalie Winkleman said, quote, uh, that the film raises the provocative idea that motherhood can feel akin to a curse. The movie, like many great works of vision, scale be damned, is almost an exorcism itself, stripping away fuss and banalities to expose raw truths. Mm. Beautiful. I was just blown away by this movie. I think it is so smart. While the scares are subtle, they're brilliant. Yeah. The imagery is beautiful and terrifying at the same time. And I think more people should go see this movie. 100%. It's on Shutter. Get yeah. a free trial. Uh, to that, too. I was actually humming and hawing earlier this week about canceling our Shutter subscription because I'm like, we haven't been using it lately. Maybe maybe we can cancel it. So I, I feel like that's very just very funny timing that this week I was considering that. And then we watched one of like one of the best horror movies that I've seen of recent, but also one of the best horror movies I think I've seen of all time. Yeah. Um. Also, two more pieces, Valeria, very Babley, my goodness. And also the punk and post-punk music was just the cherry on top for me. Yeah. I love the music. And like hearing that the director is in a punk band, that totally tracks. Yeah. It totally worked for me. Also, I want the poster. I found it online already, so we just need to pick a size. <laughs> <laughs> done and done. Ah, Yeah, I love this. Um, thank you for picking it. Yeah, you're welcome. How did it make you feel? Completely consumed by its brilliance. How did it make you feel? It made me feel astounded by the complexity of story, terror of the images, and nuance of the political commentary. It's amazing. Chef's kiss. Go watch it. Highly recommend. Let's talk about dads. Dads of the week, baby. Who's your bad dad nominee? There were some choices. Yes. But I picked Judge Turpin. Me too. Because yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Tell me more. <laughs> you tell me more. Well, I mean, first of all, he's like placing himself in a guardian role, but in a very like abusive and um, 
disgusting way with Joanna. Yeah. Uh, he's selfish. He's pompous. He's disgusting. And I hate him. Yeah. Sociopath, dangerous, creepy, covetous, vicious, cruel. You can get fucked. Judge Turpin. Don't, Don't be, be our, our dad. dad. Rad dad. Rad dad was a little bit challenging for me this week a bit because there wasn't a very blatant like good bad a lot of complex characters this week but i went with valeria oh interesting okay um and the reasons that i went with valeria and it's kind of funny choosing her as a parent given what the film is about but she confronts her own demons she's on a journey of self-discovery for better or worse She's seeking and trying to find her own voice and true self. And I'd say the thing that really struck me is that she's seeking the means to do right by herself and not by anyone else. I like that. And I think that's really, it's a real powerful thing we need to see from more characters in the stuff that we watch. What about you? I also picked a character from The Bone Woman from Hysera. But I picked Octavia. Yeah. So Octavia is a character that, in terms of her relationship with Valeria, she supports her without question, which is such an important contrast to how Valeria is treated by other people in the film. Um, she has these kind of key people who are there for her and these other people who are not. But even when Octavia supports Valeria, she still attends to her own needs. Like she doesn't, she supports her without question, but she doesn't blindly give everything of herself to her. Yeah. Um, and she communicates and is honest about like where she's at. Um, and there's a couple moments where like, I think she's not proud of like the tone she takes and like, we don't see all of that, but I feel like you can see her taking accountability for like those moments. I just found her to be such a like beautiful representation of like, partnership and caring and support and who doesn't compromise on herself exactly which i think is such an important thing i think that that's the journey that valeria is on and i think octavia models that for her yeah i like that i yeah i think octavia is it okay octavia be our dad. dad okay rad rec time why don't you set it up for us kylie so i um I'm easily swayed to watch things if one of my top tier crushes <laughs> is in it or involved in some way. And May Martin, if you've been listening, well, if May Martin, if you've been listening, please <laughs> call me. Um, but if you've been listening to this show, you know that I find May Martin to be very crush worthy. <laughs> um, and May Martin was involved in a Canadian this documentary type comedy show called I Have Nothing, which is um, made by Carolyn Taylor, who is uh, a key player in Baroness Von Sketch, if you watched that back in the day. Um, it is an absolutely phenomenal short little series in Canada. You can watch it on Crave um, and I think also maybe on CBC mm -hmm. or CTV. Don't quote me on that. Uh, I think it's harder to find outside of Canada. I've been hearing a lot of people be like kind of bummed out about that. Mm. So for once we win. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's just this beautifully hilarious, but also inspiring and also like emotional 
piece uh, about Carolyn Taylor trying to choreograph a pairs figure skate, an Olympic level pairs figure skating routine. Yeah. When she has no dancing or skating training at all. Yeah. She heard I Have Nothing by Whitney Houston and imagined what a figure skating routine would look like, all rooted in her love of the 1988 Olympics, Olympics. in Calgary. And yeah, like you said, she has no experience doing this. And what ensues is an incredible six episode romp. So if you're looking for a little bit of a break from all of the scary season madness and horror movies, this is a nice little palate cleanser and it's super great. So if you're able and able to and have the means to do so, I highly recommend seeking out the show. I have nothing. I just want to do a quick quote from um, queer writer Mel Woods on the show because it, it takes a while for it to become a key part of the series, but um, Carolyn Taylor's queerness and its connection to like her obsession with the Olympics becomes like this beautiful part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mel Woods said, quote, in many ways, the show itself is a meditation on queer obsession. Queer and trans people often spend a lifetime getting told that we're too much. We love too deeply and we obsess too fervently, whether that's about our favorite pop stars or straight crush or a single line from a decades old movie. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful show while also being incredibly hilarious Highly, highly, highly recommend. Yep. Thank you so much for listening. We have a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you'd please share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these bone daddies this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember. Not all dads have to be bad. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.